If someone came with a gun and held it to your head, or if your child or you or your family member had a terminal illness and there was a cure, but they demanded that you surrender your possessions, just think for a minute, what would you be willing to surrender? Would you give up your house? Remember, it's your child. Remember, it's your life. It's your spouse. Would you give up your house? How about the car? Maybe for your daughter, but what about your son-in-law? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe for the wife, the daughter, I don't know about the son-in-law. All the cars? What about our bank account? Would you empty out the bank account? Would you willingly turn over the bank account or the retirement account? Is there any material possession that you would not be willing to give up so that you could live or so that your child or your family member could live. I think most of us would say, I'd be willing to give up everything and start all over for the sake of my child. I'd be willing to give up everything. I would willingly give it all. I would willingly give it all for my spouse. I would willingly give it all for my family member. Jesus asked a very powerful question in Mark 8.37. And he says, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You do realize this question takes it to a whole nother dimension. This is not just referring to the 70, 80, or perhaps 90 years of life on this earth. This is referring to the eternal part of you that will never die. And let's listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8 allow you to turn there. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And it says this, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Listen to this paradox. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their own soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let me share with you a little bit of background. This is one of the most powerful seasons of Jesus's ministry. Many of the miracles that Jesus performed were accomplished in this small region of area around the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee is really not a sea like I thought of it, imagined it as a kid. I had this idea of the ocean. It's more like a big lake. And many of the miracles that Jesus accomplished were done so in a very close vicinity. It would be as if you heard Jesus working in New Holland. Well, Jesus is working in Terry Hill. And Jesus is working in East Earl. And I want you to know today that Jesus is working in Leola and he's working in Morgantown. Jesus had just fed the 4,000. He healed the blind man of Bethsaida. Then he asked the disciples who people said that he was. And you're familiar with their reply. 
They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. And then he looked at them and he said, but what about you? What about you, Andy? What about you, Brian? What about you, Felix? What about you, Lloyd? He said, what about you? It doesn't really matter who they say. Who do you say? He looked them straight in the face. He says, but what about you? Other people, it doesn't really matter what they say. What matters is what you say. And so Jesus asked that same question today here at Lighthouse. He says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He recognizes who Jesus is. is. Then Jesus does something that in my mind is odd. He warns him not to tell anyone about this. I'm like, why wouldn't you want everybody to know? Why wouldn't you tell everybody? I I don't understand. I don't quite understand that. But Jesus warns him at this time not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus begins to speak plainly to his disciples about what's going to happen. That he's going to suffer that he has to suffer. They don't want to hear that. That he's going to be rejected by the chief priest and the elders and the teachers of the law. He begins to tell them that they're going to kill me and on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. When Peter hears this, it bothers him. And so he takes Jesus aside privately and he rebukes him. He doesn't rebuke him in front of everybody. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And then Jesus does the double rebuke. You rebuke me, I'll rebuke you back, Peter. (laughs) Peter's rebuke was not private, publicly. Jesus looks at him and in front of everybody, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't have in mind the things of God. You're not thinking clearly, as it were. And this is where we pick up our text in verse 34. And here's what we find in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, the scripture says. And he addressed them. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, I'm so glad that that invitation goes out to anyone. Can I tell you, that invitation goes out to people who don't have all their stuff in order. A lot of people think that you got to get your junk in order before you come to Jesus. The invitation is to those whose lives are messed up. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be from a certain side of the tracks to follow Jesus. Well, if you live on this side of town, that's where people follow Jesus. But from my side of town, we don't follow him. No, it doesn't matter what side of town, what side of the tracks. You can even live on the tracks if you want. It's got to move every once in a while to follow Jesus. There's no age requirement. You're never too old to hear that call to come and follow me. And you cannot possibly be too young to hear the call. No matter how old or how young you are, Jesus calls. Can I tell you, you don't have to be a certain type of person to follow Jesus. People kind of think that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be a certain type. But Jesus is gathering followers from every kindred, every tribe, 
every tongue and every nation. Even at this moment from all over the world, Jesus is calling to followers and they are hearing his voice. Hear me. All around the world, the call is going out. Jesus is saying, come on to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And all around the world, at this very moment, people are hearing for the first time the call of Jesus. He's calling people in New Holland. He's calling people in East Earl. He's calling people in Lancaster. He's calling people in Downingtown. He's calling people in China, in Africa, in South America, in every country of this world. Jesus is calling people right now, and they are hearing his voice. What a glorious thing. His call is going out, and the crazy thing is it's clear. Somehow, some way, he lets people hear his voice and know his voice. What a glorious thing. His call is going out all around the earth. And as I said, there's no certain type. He's calling them from the country, and he's calling them from the city. You know, it's funny. Sometimes we want to put people in a box. We want them to look a certain way, dress a certain way, walk a certain way, talk a certain way. Do you know that when Jesus created mankind, he made us all different? Isn't it beautiful? I love looking around our church and seeing the diversity that our church has. The young, the old, the different backgrounds that we come from. What a beautiful thing that Jesus, when he calls people, he's able to call from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. And you don't have to look a certain way. He calls them from the country and the city, from the north and the south, from the east and from the west, from the warehouse to the White House. And friend, from the prison to the palace. The Lord put on my heart so powerfully as I was preparing my message. He's calling from the prison. In the prisons of America, God is calling out a clear call. The prisons around the world, God is sending out a clear call. And men and women, they they would say, well, I'm not that type. But he's calling. And all around the world, people are answering his invitation to come unto him. He's gathering to himself a people who will be fully devoted to him. He's gathering to himself a church that's without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. It's amazing how some brides clean up. Sounds kind of chauvinistic. I don't mean to. It's amazing how well some grooms clean up. On the wedding day, you're like, wow, they look great. Can I tell you that when the Lord sees his church, the bride, it's beautiful to him. He does an incredible job as he calls them to himself of preparing them to be his bride. In this verse, he goes on to state two requirements. The first thing he says, if you want to come after me, first one must deny himself. In other words, this is real simple. You have to decide to turn away from the idolatry of self-interest. And we just got to get this settled in our head. The world doesn't revolve around you. And the world doesn't revolve around me. I'm not God and neither are you. 
We got to get away from this. The first thing he says, you must deny himself. And some people think that that means you can't have anything. You can't do anything. No, it just means that you have to take self off of the throne of your life and place Jesus in his rightful place. Your self-interest, your will can no longer be on that throne. It has to be dethroned. Okay? Yourself, your will, just you. You're not in charge anymore. Okay? And we put Jesus upon the throne of our lives. Secondly, so he has to deny himself. Secondly, one must decide to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Let's simplify that. That is simply saying yes to God's will for your life. It's saying yes to God's will for your life. To take up your cross is to demonstrate publicly your submission and your obedience to the authority against which you had previously rebelled. Taking up your cross does not mean suffering or being crucified as Jesus was. He was crucified for you. He paid the price for your sins and for mine. I want you to listen to this. It's obedience to God's will. And accepting the consequences of doing his will without reservation for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. I want to say that to you one more time. Taking up your cross does not mean suffering, beating yourself. You know, there's people, what is it, in the Philippines, is that where they do? They crucify people and beat themselves and all of these things. That's not taking up your cross. Because that was Jesus' cross. That's the one he had to bear. But he has a cross for you to bear. There's something that you have to take up that belongs specifically to you. So quit complaining to him about what your cross is. Your cross might look different than somebody else's. Your cross might seem different than someone else's. Taking up your cross means obedience to God's will and accepting the consequences of doing his will without reservation, for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. In verse 35, Jesus explains that the person who tries to maintain his self-centered life, the person who tries to keep self on the throne of his life, in this world will ultimately lose his life to eternal ruin. But a person who loses his life A person who gives his life over for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel will preserve his life forever. Next, Jesus asks a powerful rhetorical question to show the supreme value of eternal life. And he asks this, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their own soul? What good does it do a person if a person can have all this world can offer? All the fame, all the recognition, all of the accomplishments, all the success, all the pats on the back. What if a person can gain all the material possessions? The nicest homes you can imagine. Multiple ones. Businesses. Multiple cars. The toys, the properties, the boats, the planes, the helicopters, the clothes, 
The jewelry. You know, you hear about people having million dollars worth of jewelry. You're like, I'm just like, what a stupid waste of What a waste. But for the person who they value that, you can have all the fancy jewelry, all the fancy things. The other part of it, gain the whole world. How about all the pleasures that this world has to offer? All the vacations, all the trips, all the entertainment, the best entertainment, the best experiences, the finest restaurants, the finest food, the most expensive drinks or drugs, the most crazy parties you can imagine, the most glamorous parties you could imagine, all of the sexual experiences that this world has to offer. What will it do for him if it cost him his soul? What good would it be? You ever notice that sometimes there's people who are in a position of power, maybe because of a job or a certain time in their life, and they're in a position of power, and people look up to them. They kind of are impressed by them. And it's ironic when they lose that position, if they're not a nice person, when they lose that position, that place of influence, that place of advantage, people look at them and it's like, it's a big deal. You don't have it now. You can't do anything for me now. Big deal. So you are a has-been. You are washed up. Wow, that's really cool that you had that in the past, but what's it do now? That really has no effect. The reality of it is, is what good will it profit a man if he gains all this world has to offer? All the power, all the recognition, all the pleasure, and all the resources this world has to offer, but loses his own soul. May I suggest to you that many people are selling themselves out for far too low a price. They do it every day. How many of you remember the Hot Wheel tracks? I see, I see that hand. I see that hand. The Hot Wheel tracks, they were bendable. Do you know what? They worked well doing something else. What? Yes. Your mom did it too, right? My dad never used that. He always used the belt on my butt. It worked good. I remember a time or so, mom would use the Hot Wheel track. Um, it was handy there. And I had a neighbor named Mickey. Mickey would always want to trade, race our matchbox, and I think he would usually get the matchboxes, and I'd have the Hot Wheels. And to be honest with you, the Hot Wheels were faster and were nicer. Mickey would have all these beat-up matchboxes that he'd left outside and stuff, but we would race. Anytime I dealt with Mickey, that he was like three years older, I always, I always lost. (laughs) Always. So I'd have my nice, fancy Hot Wheel, and I'd put it up against his beat-up matchbox. He would somehow control the race, and his matchbox would beat my Hot Wheel, and then he'd want to trade me. And I would always trade with him. And my mom would say, Steve, don't be taking your Hot Wheels over to Mickey's because he's taking your Hot Wheels from you. He's giving you these junky ones. Don't do that with him anymore. But you know what? It seemed like I always, somehow, he talked me into it. And I was probably four or five, maybe six. I'd go over and I didn't think I was going to do it. And somehow, Mickey would end up with all my nice new Hot Wheels. And mom would say, don't do it. You're not getting good cars. Don't deal with him. Can I suggest to you that many times people deal with the enemy 
And every time you deal with that sucker, he takes advantage of you again and again. If you're going to deal with him, if you're going to play with him, if you're going to enter into connection with him, he's going to beat you. You're always going to get the stinky end of the stick. Always get the bad end. It, it never works. Yet again and again, people want to deal with the devil. They want to play around with him and think this time he's offering me something good. Maybe when I deal with him this time, maybe I'll get something good out of the deal. Maybe I'll come out on top. But again and again, every time I'd come back. That thing only, only has three wheels, you know. It's been laying out. It's, you know, I kept my cars inside. But I kept my cars inside. Nicky would let his out laying in the sand, in the dirt. They'd be all dirty and rusty and cruddy. And somehow I would again and again enter into, into this agreement with him. Like Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. I want you to hear this. Many people are forfeiting their souls for the mere promise, the promise of, Freedom and pleasure. Not truly for freedom, not truly for pleasure, for the promise of it. They're their own people. They say, I'm my own person. I will not be controlled or told what to do. But the more they assert their own freedom to do what they want, the more entangled they become, the more in bondage they become. Back to Jesus' question. What good is it for a person? To gain the whole world, yet lose their own soul. Then there's the follow-up question. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Friend, there's nothing that a person can give or pay to redeem their own soul back. It would seem that I can exchange my soul for the right to do whatever I want and not have God, His Word, my parents, the church, or some pastor Tell me what to do. I can sell it, but there's no possible way for me to get it back. Uh, Try to hold on to it and end up losing it. Hold on to my rights. Let me ask this question. On the day of judgment, what would you be willing to give in exchange for your eternal soul? That grandson of yours. What would you give for his eternal soul? Many will say, I'd be willing to give up everything. But your material possessions will not redeem his or your soul. Can I suggest this to you that people always sell themselves short? They sell themselves cheap. But I want you to know this. To get their life back, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. It's almost like this. Imagine that you have something, a great family heirloom. And you sell it, and it's of great value, something of great value. Imagine you take it and you sell it really cheap. And then when the person has it and knows that you want it, they demand an extremely high price for you to get it back. They don't play nice. They're not saying, well, I know you made a mistake. I know you weren't thinking when you sold it. I know this is valuable to you. That's what the enemy does. There's an incredible price that has been established. Many people sell themselves their souls for literally nothing. For the right to say, I'm in charge. No one's going to tell me what to do. For the right to hold on to their throne in their life. 
they don't really get anything back. <laughs> they don't get anything back, but they, they sell it for that. But I want you to know that Jesus paid the full price for your redemption. He didn't go cheap. He didn't come in lowballing. He paid the full price for your redemption and for mine. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, listen to this, from the empty way of life, the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Revelation chapter 1 says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and listen to this, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Friend, it's only the blood of Jesus that can pay the price for sin. Any effort on man's part is completely and totally futile. I believe one day there's going to be a lot of attempts to bargain with God. But on that day, it'll be way too late. It goes back to the simplicity of giving up the right to rule your own life. That's what it goes back to. This giving up the right to the authority of my own life. That's denying yourself. And taking up your cross. Living a life of submission to the will of the one who you used to oppose. Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want to ask you this question. What would you give? What would you trade your soul for? What is there in this life or what is there in your experience that you would be willing to trade your soul for? What would you be willing to trade the soul of your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter? What would you be willing to trade? Can I suggest this to you? That whenever you and I are Lord of our lives and we refuse to surrender the authority and the rulership of our life, the control of our life, that we're leading others in that same way. So I'm going to ask you today, I'm going to ask you that you'll consider what it means for you to deny yourself. What it means for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ.